The Guardian. In the UK, volunteers are being sought for a new trial. The Comcov trial, run by Oxford University, will be giving some people a first dose of either the Pfizer-BioNTech or Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccines and a second dose of the other. It aims to check the safety and efficacy of the vaccines if both are used in the same immunisation schedule. But why would we want to mix and match vaccines? As well as allowing our inoculation programmes to be more flexible, could there be potential immunological benefits of using different vaccines? The heterologous boosting seems to improve, to some extent, the quantity of the immune response, but it also improves the quality of the immune response. And you seem to recruit more T-cells, enabling the immune system to detach the virus even when it's inside a cell. I'm Sarah Bosley, and this is Science Weekly. To find out more about mix-and-match vaccines, I spoke to Peter English, a consultant in communicable disease control at Public Health England. Peter, the UK are now running trials to test the efficacy of combining two different COVID vaccines. Late last year, the idea of mixing approved vaccines got a lot of attention after it was revealed that Public Health England's advice to the NHS in the Green Book was that if someone came along for their second dose and nobody knew which one they'd had to begin with, they could give them whichever was available. Are these the only circumstances we might be interested in combining vaccines? The advice was originally there for pragmatic reasons. You wouldn't. There may be occasions when people turn up and you don't know what which type of vaccine they had previously, or it might be important to give them their second dose and the the, straight, the type of vaccine they had before simply isn't available anymore. Uh, so it was permissive to allow you to use the other type of vaccine. But we do know there's been a lot of work done on doing heterologous boosting for, for quite some years now. Heterologous simply means using not quite the same thing, something different on, on the two occasions. So it, it, it's not only allows more flexibility, but it actually seems to be more effective for reasons which I'm not sure we completely understand. There are two different ways that we might combine vaccines, and one we're very used to, aren't we? For instance, in infant vaccinations, we give a number of different jabs for different diseases in the one dose, such as the MMR, for instance. And then there's what we're looking at here, which is mixing two different vaccines for the same disease. Is this very different? Could you explain what this, what's going on here? The first one you described, the use of MMR and PDSL and things in, in small children, is pragmatic, just giving several different vaccines in the same needle, so you don't have to stick lots of needles into a small child. But that's not heterologous prime boost approach because that's just giving a lot of vaccines all at the same time. A heterologous prime boost approach means that you use a different vaccine for priming the immune system to the one you use for boosting it some weeks later. So let's take a look at what the new trial is doing. It's testing the combination of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in a regimen which either gives you one or then the other to start with, and then some people will get the same one again and some people will get a different one. So this is heterologous prime boosting, as you said. Why are we interested in doing this? Several reasons. One of the other things that they're doing is they're doing it at different intervals as well. I think it's at six and 12 weeks. 
The reasons are partly pragmatic because there might come a time when we need to give somebody a different vaccine because the first one isn't available. But it's also because of all the evidence from other infections that heterologous boosting often works more effectively than homologous boosting with the same product. Do you have any sense of how this might be working? Are these vaccines, even though they're different products, are, are they protecting us in the same ways? At the moment, they're all using precisely the same antigen. The antigen is the spike protein of the virus, and the spike protein is the part of the virus that allows it to latch on to cells and get inside them and start doing its, its evil business. They're using exactly the same antigen, this spike protein. They've programmed the genes that create this spike protein either into a, a vector virus, in the Oxford vaccine case, or they're using the genes directly as mRNA, the genetic material, putting that straight into cells. But they're both using and producing precisely the same antigen. So there's every reason to think that they will stimulate the immune system perfectly effectively. Could you potentially use vaccines that are different and perhaps ones that have been tweaked for other variants to give additional protection? Yes, the other version of heterologous vaccines is when you do exactly that. You, you use a slightly different version of the antigen. It's easier to understand how that might work because the immune system is presented with something similar to what it recognises already, but slightly different. So it has to do a bit more work to address it. You can more easily understand how that could enhance all the other aspects of the immune system as heterologous prime boosting seems to do. We do know that quite a lot of the research has found that if you use a DNA, or presumably it would also work with an RNA vaccine for priming, and then give a protein vaccine, i.e. the actual antigen, that using a, a genetic version for the first dose and a protein version for the booster dose seems to be particularly effective. The heterologous boosting seems to improve, to some extent, the quantity of the immune response in terms of the amount of antibody but it also improves the quality of the immune response. You get a better quality antibody response. You get the antibody binds tighter and more effectively to the antigen, and you seem to recruit more T cells. And the T cells do all sorts of things in terms of improving the immune response, improving the memory, uh, so the immunity will last for longer, uh, enabling the immune system to detect the, the virus even when it's inside a cell, because antibodies can only recognize it when it's outside a cell. They've used that for some of the diseases which we have been trying to develop vaccines against, but where it's been hard to find one that works. Hepatitis C, uh, dengue, malaria are all examples of that, where we've used a prime boost approach because homologous vaccination didn't seem to work very well. There's some work going on looking at heterologous prime boost vaccines for flu, to try and provide better protection against a wider range of strains of flu so that that might in due course reduce the, the frequency with which we need to give flu doses. There's also a prospect for some diseases like tuberculosis that we might in theory at least be able to develop therapeutic vaccines. So even after you've got the disease, the vaccine might help you to clear the disease in a way that your immune system doesn't seem to be able to do in some people, some people do clear the disease, others don't. So it might help those who don't clear the disease to clear the disease altogether.
So in this trial, and you actually mentioned this earlier, they are varying the length of time between the doses to get more evidence regarding the government's approach to spreading out the doses from four to 12 weeks. Also, of course, we've got the new variants now emerging, which require more trials for vaccine efficacy. Do you think we'll be able to get a clear picture of uh, what works and what doesn't with heterologous prime boosting before the majority of the higher risk populations have at least had their first dose, which is scheduled to be completed by April? Well, in a sense, I would hope not, because I would hope everybody gets vaccinated, at least to those in the, the uh, most at risk before we'd have any time for such research to, to come to fruition. The research isn't expected to take terribly long, but it'll still take longer than I hope it takes to vaccinate all the vulnerable people. We know there's a precedent for combining vaccines which treat different diseases together. Could you imagine that this might happen one of these days with COVID-19 as well, for instance, combining it with influenza? Oh, yes, I, I believe that there is already work going on to try and make compound vaccines for both flu and COVID-19 makes a lot of sense, particularly if we're going to need to give uh, different vaccines to to target it with different variants of the virus as time goes by. I know that in the past, some people have been quite anxious about this idea of their child being given several vaccines at the same time. And uh, adults might worry about it too, perhaps with COVID and flu. Is there any reason to worry about the safety? No, absolutely not. We've done lots of research looking at this. There was a wonderful paper some years ago comparing all the antigens in current vaccines, put them all together, and it's tiny compared to the number of antigens you get in one bacterial infection. The immune system is used to coping with lots and lots of different antigens or viruses or bacteria all at the same time. Every time you brush your teeth or every time a child falls over in the playground and grazes its knee, they'll encounter far more antigens than you get in any modern vaccines. So it really is not a reason to be concerned at all. That's really interesting. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Sarah. Nice to talk to you. And you too. Thanks again to Peter. If you've got a question about the pandemic you'd like us to explore on the podcast, do email us on scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We're back on Thursday. Stay safe and see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.